Hello listeners and welcome to your dose of positivity at the positive cast. I'm your host Mitali Sahani. Together we will embark on a journey of knowing about ordinary people doing extraordinary things for the environment, community and towards sustainability. Join me as I speak with motivated individuals and cover stories of fantastic innovations made for the betterment of everyone. So sit back and enjoy the show. We have with us today an iconic leader who is one of the early female conservationists in our country. As the program director at Worldwide Fund for Nature or WWF India as most of us know it, she has led several great environmental initiatives under her leadership which have been very successful. She currently leads a team of 300 people at WWF India. Her work for conservation has taken her across the globe where she worked with many leaders in the field of conservation and sustainable development. Now as she is giving a new direction to her approach to conservation, she is back to her roots where she is using her wisdom towards a wonderful initiative in a small settlement near Masuri in the state of Uttarakhand, India. Let's welcome Dr. Sejal Vora to our show and hear more about the details of this project from her. Thank you for making time for this interview Dr. Vora. Thanks it's a pleasure to be here. As people in the field of sustainable development, we all are aware about you and your contributions in the field of environment and conservation. Today we want to talk to you about the Jabar Khet project that is soaring under your leadership. Please tell us what this project is and how it all started. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that uh, rather grand sounding introduction. Uh, indeed, you know, I have spent a lot of time and a lot of my career uh, working all over the world, um, you know, as an advisor, telling people how to do conservation, um, telling people how to integrate sustainable development and conservation. And uh, it's actually for me probably more satisfying uh to have come back as you said to my roots and starting started this very small project it started you know just as a as a glimmer uh and it, it's still nothing you know that great or that big uh, but in terms of satisfaction and the sense of achievement that it gives me it's as much as anything else that i've ever done so we uh so so just i i'll need to go a little bit back in time to tell you about the origins of this uh, this project Um so you know when we were growing up we used to come to Masuri um quite often for our summer holidays because we had a home in Masuri and every time we came here one of our favorite places uh, to go and hike was uh, this place that we used to call Flag Hill uh, and as a child i had uh, you know just wonderful memories of this place and i carried them with me you know wherever i went over the next 20 years as i grew as a professional i traveled the world um you know flag hill was always something that was was in my mind um you know as children cherish these memories when i came back to masuri after about 20 years of uh, living and working outside uh, of course one of the first things i did was i made a beeline for flag hill imagine my shock um i was actually quite um horrified and saddened by what i saw because what i remembered as a pristine magical forest uh was actually uh overridden with weeds uh, you know there was massive tree cutting and felling going on uh, it was covered in trash and rubbish 
Um, and, and as an ecologist and as a conservation professional, I could see that this was a hill that needed desperate help uh, if it was to recover. And that's when the seeds of this Jabbar Khed story got, uh, got sown because I really felt that rather than telling everybody else how to do things, I should be doing it in my own backyard. Um, but it's not quite as easy as, you know, to just say, okay, here's a hill, let me restore it. Uh, it was a long process. And uh, of course, one of the first things I had to do is I had to find out who actually owned it. Um, I didn't even realize, you know, as children, you don't you don't think about these things. You just go wherever, you know, uh, things take you. Right. But uh, apparently this was privately owned. Um, so then I uh, found out who owned it. I had a meeting with the owner of the hill. Um, and this was a, a gentleman called Mr. Vipul Jain who lives in Bombay. And uh, surprisingly enough, when I pitched this idea to him uh, and basically said, look, you know, you've got a legacy here. You're so lucky to have a place like this. Uh, it's something that we could transform forever and, and show future generations of how conservation can be done and how conservation also is, is something that is not just for luxury for a few people, but it is something that is a livelihood uh, and a learning experience for everyone. Um, he bought into this idea and, and that's how the Jabbar Khed story started. Right. Um, and we decided that we were going to, uh, to work towards restoring this hill. So, so that's... Um, you know, that was the beginning. A lot of people ask me, uh, can we also replicate this? And I'll talk about that a little later, because as I said, it's not quite as easy um, as it sounds. But uh, yeah, so that's where we are. Right. So when you were starting this project, what did you have in mind? What did you think this place would look like? And uh, how true has that turned out to be? So that's a really good question, because frankly, um, I... I had a vision that I wanted to protect this place because when I looked around Masuri, um, you know, I was again horrified because this yeah. was not the Masuri I remembered. There was just, you know, it was so heavily developed with not an inch of space left to even make you realize that you're in the Himalayas and what a Himalayan forest or a Himalayan mountain looks like. That's all I had in mind. You know, I had in mind that we need to protect some parts of, of Masuri uh, just so that you know, people know what what uh, what forests and mountains and, and wildlife is like. But, um, you know, the interest and, and because I had worked my entire life in the non-government sector, uh, the only thing I could think of was, OK, so, you know, I'll write a proposal, I'll get a grant, I'll get some money, I'll invest that money in the project, I'll do a project. That's that's how my mind worked. But fortunately for me, um, the owner, you know, Vipul, with whom I was working, he's a businessman. And he thought very differently from I did. And he basically said, look, if this is not a business venture, if it doesn't pay for itself, it's not going to survive. Uh, and initially I resisted that because I'm not a business minded person and I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, sort of think about a profit making motive with conservation. Uh, I've seen examples of that which don't work very well. So I was a bit resistant, but I didn't really have a choice. Uh, he didn't give me a choice. He basically said, look, we'll start this off. We'll invest in it. Uh, but it should break even and start paying for itself in five years. If it doesn't do that, we'll have to rethink the whole model. So I had a challenge. You know, he, he kind of put a challenge in front of me and I rose to the challenge and I said, OK, let's try this. You know, we've tried everything else. Let's see if we can make this into a, into a viable business model. So that's when we thought of the idea of, of ecotourism and, and thinking about how can we actually make this into a, a real quote unquote ecotourism venture, uh, which is not on paper, but actually does you know, um, provide livelihoods for local people, does provide jobs, uh, does provide education and awareness, does support conservation, you know, all the things that ecotourism is supposed to do. 
Uh, that's then what became, you know, my vision to say, let me set up a model that actually works and demonstrates very importantly how conserving a forest can actually be an economically viable alternative for both local people and for the owners, uh, because it has to work, you know, for for the landowners as well as for the forest owners as well. Um, and and so that's that's how the idea of uh, you know developing this into a forest that is restoring itself. creating livelihoods and doing conservation uh, and supporting awareness and education uh, came into being so in a way it was organic you know it wasn't like i had a, a fixed plan and i was going along a fixed plan mm-hmm. i had a vision and i had passion and i had commitment uh, and i had support mm-hmm. uh, you know that's that's what it took and then the rest of it kind of grew Uh, from that and now you know we we do have a model that people are now replicating and i'm like oh wow you know i've come up with something uh, that actually works but at that point in time we frankly didn't know whether it would work or not um you know we had enormous challenges along the way just just you know to to give an example when we started um this patch of forest or this hill was used by everybody it was open access right it was a typical open access because the you know the landowners were not there um you know local people were using it for for grazing for collecting firewood uh, trees were being cut animals were being hunted um people were coming and picnicking there there were joggers there were hikers there were you know i mean it was basically used by everyone um so when we started we had to start putting some regulations because it was clearly overused and and certainly some activities like hunting and and tree felling which needed to be controlled Um so when we started it there was enormous resistance there was resistance from everyone from from the local users uh, to the picnickers to the you know local residents of Masuri who had open access to this play, place uh, everybody resisted it because they couldn't quite conceive what we were trying to do um and no matter how much you explained and said look this is going to be good for you in the long run uh people couldn't see because you know it was too far in the distance Uh, so initially i i did fa- especially from from the actual you know on the ground users um the residents of jabarkhet itself uh that was where most of the resistance came from but um, so we started uh, we started with the explanations we also started by creating small little jobs um for the locals so we made sure that everybody we employed uh, for the reserve were from the local area we trained uh, a number of local you know youth um, to become nature guides they've now all you know been employed in the reserve and they're acting as nature guides and they've grown enormously in terms of their knowledge and their confidence so as these things started developing i think the attitudes started changing uh, and and as the job sort of uh, livelihood ecosystem increased you know the taxi drivers benefited the dhaba owners benefited homestays started coming up um you know more more sort of money was flowing into the area and, and recognition uh you know a lot of recognition a whole new destination was created uh, which also made the local people proud that right. you know now we have and i kept telling them that i said you know you you guys will you see the difference you know jabarkhet will become something that everybody talks about in a very positive way um you know there'll be lots of changes so that has happened and i think that has uh, that has also been very uh, i would say very satisfying for yeah. me to see that turn around Yeah I can imagine uh, one thing uh, we would like to know is that uh, how instantly did you see restoration of flora and fauna at uh, what is now known as Jabarkhet nature reserve after you started the project and how have you been monitoring it Yeah so um, 
So that I think was one of the most remarkable things for me because I thought that would be a big challenge and you know we'd have to undertake a lot of uh, work to to restore the forest planting trees you know retaining soil all kinds of stuff even even water you know restoring some of the springs um but you know I mean this is the this is the beauty of indian forests in many ways is uh, you remove the pressure they bounce back so so as soon as the pressure started going getting less you know the the grazing was controlled the tree cutting was controlled the lopping was controlled um you know hunting was controlled and and we also started little things like removing some of the exotic weeds and creating patches of of native grass uh we just saw nature kind of coming back in its cycle um and we've seen the full cycle so it's been i mean the very first year i can tell you that the first year that um you know the grazing pressure stopped uh, we saw the meadows coming back to life i mean the the flowers the ground orchids the mushrooms the grasses um uh, it was just astounding you know to to see how quickly it comes back and um uh, similarly you know the the tree canopy i mean if you go to jabarkhet now and i have photographs of it before and you see this completely lush canopy close canopy forest yes. it's taken about 8 years Okay. uh for for that to happen where you you know you didn't have the annual lopping ritual of the trees and stuff the ground vegetation i think was the first to bounce back um we've we've done a documentation i mean it's it's also been fantastic that so many people have helped me uh i mean we didn't have the resources to hire teams of of researchers and scientists to come and help us but everybody has chipped in you know botanists um uh birders insect people um you know people who've come and enumerated the fungi for us the ferns for us it's just uh, you know the the outpouring of support that we got technical support when people heard what we were trying to do yeah. was remarkable and and as a result of that we've had a really good documentation mm-hmm. uh, a very good baseline documentation with which we can keep comparing now to see yeah. um, what's happening just to tell uh, you know a small story a small anecdote which explains how uh, how forests and wildlife uh, in particular comes back i mean the wildlife recovery has been remarkable i can tell you that in our little 100 acres we probably have all of the middle hill sort of you know wildlife species that are that are represented in the middle hills everything from foxes to uh, uh, you know to obviously leopards and and leopard cats but the remarkable story was about the bears um and when i started i had no idea what to expect you know we put out the camera traps uh, across the reserve and we had no idea what to expect of course we got some of the common stuff uh, one fine day i um, i got a bear with a cub and uh, i was really excited so i went uh, and talked to uh, steve alter who's lived here for 40 or 50 years and he's been you know uh, walking in this area for a long time and he refused to believe me He said no bears have not been seen in Missouri for 40 years they're gone. Uh, and I said no Steve I promise you I've got a bear on my camera. And so I I showed it to him and he was astounded and then we tried to figure out what's going on. And then I talked to another veteran uh, naturalist uh, Dr. John Singh who also knows this area quite well. And I said Dr. John Singh you know bears are coming back uh, to Jabalpur what's going on? So he immediately made the connection and he he reminded me that one of the first things we'd done is we'd controlled the lopping of the oak trees. Okay. And as a result of that the acorns came back mm-hmm. and we had bumper crops of acorns I mean the trails were just smothered in acorns which we had, which I had never seen in my childhood as well you know because acorns hardly ever dropped down from the trees the, the trees didn't have acorns and as a result of of course the acorns and the berries and and all of that coming back the bears started coming back uh, similarly we you know we saw large large groups of gorel 
Uh, and again, you know, 14, 15 gural, I told Dr. John Singh, I mean, he's an expert on gural. I said, have you ever seen 15 gural in one photo frame? You know, just, and he said, that is remarkable. What's going on? Uh, and again, it was, you know, the, the return of the native grasses, the controlling of the cutting of the grass, uh, and just the recovery of the ecosystem. It just brought everything back. So it, it doesn't take a lot, but it also doesn't take a lot, I should say, to destroy it. Right. Um, so just as quickly as it has recovered, it can very quickly get destroyed. And one of the worries we had was during COVID. Uh, so last year during COVID, we were completely shut down. You know, there was a complete lockdown. There was no movement. Uh, and we thought, oh, this is great. The forest will recover. Yeah. Instead, what we found is that people were actually using the area for massive hunting uh, and, and poaching that was going on. So... Uh, so luckily we had cameras, so we managed to catch the people on the cameras. <laughs> but talking to the locals and to my local guides, uh, they told me that the hunting has never been as bad as it was during the COVID times. There were gunshots all through the day. Uh, so I don't know how much we lost, um, oh, okay. you know, during COVID. So as I say, you know, as quickly as it comes back, right. uh, incidents like this, you know, one event like this, two years of shutdown, mm -hmm. um, you could have destroyed everything. But I'm very happy to say... Uh, that we've just checked our, our camera traps again and I'm just downloading photos as we speak and I've got some fantastic uh, images of uh, groups of, of gural and, and leopards are back and, you know, the bears and everything. So, Dutch wood, um, the wildlife has survived. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We would love to see those photos and maybe sure. I can share it in a link in our podcast as well so our sure. listeners can see them as well. And that is such an interesting point you bring that, you know, if you leave a place untouched for just a small while, we saw that even in the cities during COVID, right. that the pollution went down, the air was just cleaner, and you saw so many birds, so definitely. But equally fast, we went yes. back to what it was, right? It was a matter yeah. of days, for sure. You talk about how you have tried to make a sustainable model out of this nature reserve. So definitely you have kept tourism in mind while you were making this. Yeah. As we know that uh, tourism tends to ruin any ecosystem if not managed properly. And in India, there are no guidelines <laughs> or anything to keep that in check. So we wanted to know that at uh, Jabarkhet Nature Reserve, how have you opened it up to tourists and how are you keeping them under check? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And I, I should tell you that uh, I've been involved in the tourism, ecotourism, community-based tourism, wildlife tourism sector uh, for a very long time. And uh, I'm equally skeptical, uh, as, as what you said, because I've rarely in India seen well-managed Right. Uh, tourism in in wildlife areas you know it, it's somehow the or in natural areas or somehow the other actually. they're not able to they're not able to control manage um, you know so-called ecotourism is is actually just mass tourism under another name uh, and inevitably uh, you know any new place that you open up for tourism gets uh, gets destroyed so so we were very conscious of that and i particularly was very conscious of of the fact that uh, we didn't want to. We wanted tourism to be the the supporter of this reserve and not the destroyer of this reserve, yeah. right? Um, so we had. Uh, so we did several things. One is, of course, uh, we don't advertise in a big way. You know, we have a website and we have uh, people who talk word of mouth, uh, and so we generally get um, get visitors who are already tuned in and yeah. who are eager to visit a place like this. So we don't end up with very large numbers. Uh, in any case, so so it's controlled just by by not advertising a lot. Lots of people ask me and say, why are you not more aggressive in marketing? But I think we are okay because we're just about managing 
uh, the numbers. We think that the, you know, we don't, haven't done an official carrying capacity estimate, but we think that in a day, um, you know, a reserve, our reserve, which is, you know, 100 acres and has about nine different trails in it, uh, can handle about 50 to 60 people per day, okay. maximum. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we generally get to that level a few a few times a year, you know, where it's it's continuously at that level. But we don't take more than that. So we often get requests, for example, to take, uh, so school groups. We haven't done schools because schools insist on bringing 30, 40, 50, 60 kids at a time. Uh, we're not able to cope with it. We get corporate requests a lot saying, you know, do a corporate retreat, take 100 of us or 80 of us or, you know, 50 of us on a, on a retreat to Jabal kids. We don't uh, do that kind of thing. Um, we also uh, are very, very careful about the behavior of the tourists. Um, you know, one of the things, just yesterday we had a, had a walk with a group of 30. We had a special walk. Uh, we do special walks occasionally with, uh, you know, with special, um, you know, writers or, or specialists in something. It's just to give people a sense of, of uh, nature. And one of the, the visitors remarked something that I get often uh, is that, you know, this is amazing. This is one of the few places where I've walked for so many hours and I haven't seen a single piece of trash. Uh, so, you know, and, and people told me, they said that, you know, with tourism in India comes trash. Uh, you will not be able to separate the two. So I said, okay, chalo, you know, we'll see. Let's see how it goes. And I have to tell you, we haven't had a problem. We've had thousands of visitors, uh, but we've not had a problem. It's also how you orient the tourist. So, you know, tourist behavior depends a lot on you as well. You know, tourists will behave the way they're, they're told to behave. Our guides are very, very particular. They're young boys, but they are fully respected uh, by the tourists. They don't tolerate any kind of, you know, uh, misbehavior, noise, trash, cutting. Uh, so, so right at the beginning, they're oriented. And, and uh, I'm, I'm amazed at how well behaved they are. So don't tell me that Indian tourists don't know how to behave. They certainly do. Uh, it really, as I said, depends on how they're oriented because... Um, you know, when, when you go abroad and you go to a nature reserve, you follow all the rules. Yeah. Uh, so why would you in India not follow the rules? You will, you know, if you're, if you're told. So I think we've managed so far to keep the, keep the tourist numbers at a level uh, which is enough for us to sustain the reserve because obviously you need to generate enough revenue. Uh, I need to pay the staff. We have upkeep of the reserve. We have yeah. materials that we have to produce. So we have a running cost and, and we need mm-hmm. to meet that. Um, when I started this and, and I said my only model that we're not going to do any accommodation we were very clear no camping no accommodation it's just going to be nature walks and bird walks and guided walks uh, and people laughed at me and said forget it you know no one's going why should they pay you to go for a walk in the forest they can go anywhere in Masuri. you know masuri has got trails all over the place so no one's going to come so I said, okay, fine, if no one comes, no one comes. Uh, but anyway, we gave it a shot. And remarkably, in three years, we broke even. Remember, oh, wow. we had a five-year time limit. Yeah. So in three years, we broke even. Uh, unfortunately, COVID came. If COVID hadn't come, we would have started generating a small corpus. Uh, but the little corpus that we had created allowed us to keep the staff on. So that eight months or something when we had no visitors, uh, we managed to just keep, uh, keep the staff paid and kept the reserve going. So, yeah, so surprisingly, uh, it is a model that works. It's a model that works with very little infrastructure because tourism equals infrastructure. Tourism equals mass tourism. Tourism equals, uh, you know, uncontrollable chaos. Tourism equals, and we haven't got any of that. So, um, yeah, so we, we've managed to, to keep it at bay. And I think we have a model that generates income, doesn't have a high footprint uh, and changes behavior. And builds awareness. So, so this is, you know, to me, um, 
this is how it should be but it's it's small but it works no that's amazing no in it's unimaginable to have something like this in india I'm the danger so of course the danger of course in india is that somebody will see it so you know you were also asking me about replication uh, the danger in india is that somebody will see it and replicate it but in the wrong way uh, so we're already worried that there are people around who are watching this and saying okay great you know all i need is a patch of forest a few trails in it and i'll start charging people money and they'll come right uh, that's not what it is we have invested so much uh, in making this what it is in, particularly we've invested in the people the guides you know the boys who who actually run this place yeah. more than me it's them and it's their passion and commitment which runs it you know it's because of them that people are coming and so many people have told me that you know okay so these kinds of trails we can go anywhere but the kind of passion that you know virendra vipul deepak these boys bring in and and when we see them talking about this forest and their love for it that's what makes it come alive for us that's what makes it interesting now that you can't replicate right very easily yeah. um so so my concern is basically that people will just see this as a money making model and said okay let us also do it which will destroy the whole spirit of of what we are trying to do on the other hand uh, i've had lots of people coming to me from all over india you know from sikkim uh, from andhra uh, from karnataka all coming and saying hey you know this is fantastic i have a small patch of land uh, can't i do a similar thing you know i have a wetland i have a this So so you know the spark of private citizens becoming conservationists is something that I really want to explain. you know right. if you ask me what's my vision for the future uh, this is what it is that anybody who has a patch of land yeah. you know even if it's an acre half an acre uh, converts into it into a conservation zone that's going to be the future for India you know in India we don't have large areas of forest uh, anymore you know mm-hmm. to conserve there's no yeah. huge patches that we can protect so future conservation and protection is going to come from small patches uh and when these small patches add up uh that's going to you know be significant and meaningful so my message right now is to everybody you know you have whatever you have just convert it into a conservation zone and we'll have a network of small private uh, conservation reserves across this country yeah yeah we would like to know that uh, what is your plan for jabarkhet in the next one or two years or in the next five years and are you planning to replicate such a model anywhere else yeah so uh so actually what i'd like to see is i'd like to see jabarkhet become like a seeding ground uh, for more models like this so one thing of course is that we need to expand jabarkhet itself uh, it's only 100 acres but you know that jabarkhet is surrounded by other private forests uh, there's the the school forest of woodstock there's a cantonment forest there's the reserve forest mm-hmm. so ideally what we should do is we should actually bring all the different uh, forest owners together to de facto say that we want to expand this area to make a larger conservation reserve yeah. uh, without taking away ownership or anything because obviously nobody wants to do that so one vision i would have is that everybody around joins in and we have one kind of larger area because these animals are moving around through these forests right my leopards are not sitting in jabarkhet they're moving right. and they're vulnerable so when these animals move out they're vulnerable so we want to create a larger conservation zone so that's one uh, vision that i have and the other is that we kind of move forward Uh, to become like a training center you know something that that uh, you know can train nature guides uh, we can one of the things that's been happening very interestingly um, you know in uttarakhand there are one panchayats uh, and these one panchayats which are community owned forests scattered along the hills they're also looking for ways to generate income 
and and have an incentive to conserve them so the other day we had 25 sarpanches okay. uh, from these one panchayats come to jabarkhet to see how we are doing what are we doing can we actually convert our forests into into tourism areas and it was a great interaction you know they were so excited by what they saw uh, so this kind of thing you know how how does jabarkhet become a ground uh, for expanding this model across um, so not not just conserving and and protecting for the sake of ourselves Uh, but to expand this model and and become like a a capacity building center a training center mm-hmm. uh, which is supporting anybody who has a vision of of doing something like this so that's that's what we would like to do in the coming few years that's amazing and uh, looking at this model if people are themselves taking an initiative for something like this that's i think that's your goal achieved right there <laughs> absolutely i feel like we're going somewhere and you know i should thank people like you who are publicizing the effort uh you know putting out these podcasts telling people about what we are trying to do and and hopefully inspiring others as well thanks you know the pleasure is all ours uh one more thing we would like to know is that in a place like jabarkhet now that there is so much wildlife other communities around the forest affected in any way yeah good question so so i was earlier living in fear of this very fact that okay you know if the leopards increase or if bears start coming Uh, there's going to be a backlash people are not going to be happy uh, sharing yeah. this space so i was actually very careful in the early days of not sharing the photographs you know we'd get leopard photo bear photo i'll keep quiet about it uh, but now i realize a everybody knows uh, and b you know there's been no incident of conflict and i think the reason for that is because we have a prey base there is so much prey in jabarkhet you know there's so much there's wild boar there's goral there's barking deer um, you know there's even sambar has been coming in Uh, so there's enough uh, you know food enough for the for the for the carnivores to feed on uh, that there hasn't been actually any incident of conflict so uh, touch wood and i'm very happy that there's been no incident of conflict and i think it will continue that way yeah. uh, and and surprisingly now i'm not scared of of sharing these uh, in fact the the, the community <laughs> itself comes to me and says you know this we saw this and that leopard was there and all that so and the other thing that um, people do tend to do is they often leave the unproductive scrub animals in the forest mm-hmm. um okay. you know so uh, so often in our camera traps we'll see a bull or or something roaming around in the forest which has been deliberately left i think by the villagers and probably the leopard picks up uh, those as well but doesn't come out of the forest to attack uh, any life not even dogs i mean i haven't heard of uh, any dogs in the area being taken did you have to train the community members in any way to be wary of these animals or anything i think see i think in in uttarakhand they're all used to living with uh, with leopards and bears in okay. in the vicinity so they they're quite it's it's actually the outside people uh, that i worry about so what happens is is you know there's been a lot of road works and other work going on So a lot of laborers have been coming from outside so you know Nepali laborers and laborers from outside that's what I'm worried about because they are the ones who go into the forest for whatever reason right. um and and would run into these problems so so that's my bigger worry i think the locals are all uh, well versed in how to live with wildlife this is also part of the reason why i don't allow camping uh and i don't have people walking after dark in the reserve because mm-hmm. the last thing i want is a chance encounter it's going to be a chance encounter i don't think wildlife will come out deliberately but even if there is one chance encounter and and something goes wrong yeah uh, then i'll have a huge problem on my hands because you know i'm an individual um, i'm sure. not the department so i'm very careful mm-hmm. uh in terms of not letting people walk around uh, in the reserve after dark or camp but uh, okay some people still do <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can't you can't stop that. everything uh, 
Dr. Ora, it has been so amazing to see you uh, and your eyes spark up while you're talking about this project and just to see how how much you've put into this project and how well it's come out. So we really want to know what keeps you motivated and inspired to do such amazing work and taking up such challenging tasks by yourself. Yeah, so, you know, um, I've been in the field of environment and conservation all my life. And uh, when I was young and, uh, you know, sort of spangle-eyed and, and, you know, this was a new sector and a new world that was opening up to me, uh, obviously everything was, was exciting, right? As a field researcher, uh, I spent time in, in the forests in South Gujarat uh, doing my PhD. Uh, it, was, it was a remarkable time. You know, I was one of the few women, as you said, in the opening um, of, this, of this podcast, uh, living out there on my own, um, experiencing all kinds of things, good and bad, uh, but it was it was a very um, I think it was what shaped me as a person uh, being able to do that uh, that work on my own and it showed me that uh, a you know women are capable of anything uh, because a lot of a lot of people I should say used to come you know I was living in this very very remote area uh, no electricity no running water yeah. <laughs> uh, you know just doing my research just single mindedly as we do. Uh, and people would come up to me and say, what are you doing here? You know, what is the, what is the girl doing here on her own? You know, what, your parents don't care for you or what? Uh, you know, so I would get lots of insinuations. My poor parents would get dragged into it, you know, to say that they don't care for you. How are you allowed to do something like this? But I pushed on regardless. Um, and, and, you know, came out of it at the other end as a, as a strong professional. Um, I, I think the experience of my years outside of India, where I worked in Southeast Asia and East Africa... Uh, were also challenging, but uh, it also made me realize how special India is. Uh, and I always knew that I wanted to come back in the end and, and work in India. The world experience is always good uh, because it, it puts it into perspective. Uh, there have been times, uh, you know, since I've come back uh, to India and started looking at, India is facing enormous challenges in terms of just balancing development and conservation. And anybody who's in the field knows it. It's, it's a continuous battle. It shouldn't be a battle because we're not on two different sides, uh, but it is. And there are days when I can tell you, uh, or moments when I tell you, it can be very depressing and demoralizing. Uh, and so often I get asked this question saying, you know, everything is gloom and doom. I mean, if you look at the environment in India, it's just gloom and doom. How can you, you know, what makes you continue and what keeps you going? Uh, and I think it's, it's several things. It's, one is, of course, you can't give up. Uh, it's a battle that those of us who believe in can't give up because it's the battle for the future of our country. Uh, it's not an elitist thing. It's mm-hmm. not something that a few... It's not because I want to go and see tigers in the wild. Yeah. Uh, but because we believe that the future of this country is tied up with its environment and how we treat nature. Um, so it's, it's a strong belief in that. And the second is, uh, you know, small victories like this. So small things like, like Javor Khet and small things like, uh, you know, you meet somebody um, in the field, you meet a villager, you meet a farmer, uh, you meet young uh, researchers, you know, students who were like me when I was, and you see them, uh, you know, so excited to do it. I don't have the heart to tell them that you're fighting a losing battle, you know. So I have to, if I'm not upbeat and if I'm not motivated, then how is the next generation going to be motivated? Uh, so, so that's what keeps me going. What keeps me going is that we need lots and lots of warriors in this battle. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, we have to, you know, and I have to hand over, you know, so I know that, you know, I have to hand over. The next generation is going to take over. So uh, we need to make space uh, for, for the future, future generation. And it's a, it's a remarkable generation, you know, from what I'm seeing. Um, many, many, many more uh, motivated people than when I was uh, 
working right yourself being one um yeah. <laughs> you know women in conservation this is what we've been fighting for and this is what we have to you know keep fighting for right aim yeah. into that yeah <laughs> <laughs> it is always a treat listening to thought leaders like you and today has especially been wonderful thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and work with us it has been truly inspiring and your work tells us that our actions can indeed have a very positive impact on our environment Thank you for joining us at Positive Cast and we hope for many jabber kids to emerge in the coming time. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much. That brings us to an end of another inspiring story at the Positive Cast. I hope you enjoyed listening and you shifted your outlook towards nature and environment just a little bit. Please find details to the Jabarkhet Nature Reserve in our description box. Production and editing was done by me Mitali. Music and title track was from Pixabay. Join us next week as we deep dive into an innovative way to curb air pollution. Until then, take care and stay safe.